As we approach verse 1 of Revelation chapter 2, I want you to keep in mind, we're not going to recap much, but keep in mind that this is Jesus dictating a letter to his servant John, a letter to be delivered to an actual church in the first century, located in one of these ancient cities. So we're just going to get into it. If you want more of a backdrop or introduction to the seven letters, you I'll refer you to last Sunday's study. Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel, which we know already in context to be the passenger or the messenger, of the church of Ephesus, the church located in Ephesus, write. So again, Jesus is the one speaking. Write these things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and not just does he hold them, the, the idea in the Greek is he holds them tightly. He's got a grasp on them. Who walks presently, and the tents in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And again, if you haven't been with us, this is a, reverence, a reference to the revelation uh, of himself that Jesus had given to John uh, back in chapter 1. Verse 2, so Jesus' commendation. He says to this church of Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now verse 4 is Jesus' criticism. Nevertheless, or in spite of all the things that I just listed out, I have this against you. That you have left or let go of your first love. Verse 5 now begins Jesus' counsel in light of this criticism. Remember therefore where you have fallen... Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is not just to one church, it's many churches. It's not just to a collective group, but individuals. You have ears, churches don't. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let me quickly begin with a profile of this ancient city of Ephesus. And again, we noted in our introduction that with all of these letters, there are several ways that you can view them, read them, the totality of which gives us the best understanding of what's being articulated. Yes, Jesus is writing to an actual church, the church of Ephesus, first century, a local congregation. Beyond that, he's writing to the churches. He picked seven. So he's writing to one church, a letter, a message to be disseminated amongst all churches. Not just in that day, but throughout all time. The Apostle Paul, interestingly, wrote to seven churches. Seven being completion. Jesus had seven kingdom parables. This seven repeats itself. So he's writing to a local church. He's writing to the churches in that time period. So that there'll be local contexts. Aside from that, he's addressing, I believe, periods of church history. Not rigid in their timeline, but more of movements. And we'll, we'll see that exemplified this morning. He's writing to our church, and he's writing to you. And so when we examine these letters in that totality, we'll get a best understanding of what Jesus is trying to say. So let's start again with Ephesus, this ancient city. The origins of this Hellenistic culture, this society, date all the way back to the 10th century BC. Uh, Ephesus, the word Ephesus, means the desired one. The city reached its notoriety when Augustus issued a formal decree making it the capital of Asia Minor in the year 27 BC. 
at the time of John's writing, Ephesus was the permanent home of the Roman, of, of, of the Roman governor, as well as most of the, uh, the political class. The population was about half a million. Because Ephesus had an important port and was located at the crossroads of four major Roman highways, it was the center of commerce and banking for the whole region. By the first century, Ephesus was known as the backbone of the Roman Empire. The Greek historian Strabo says of Ephesus that it was second importance only to Rome, the capital. The city was so influential that it really linked together east and west. It was the lifeblood. It served as the lifeblood for the area. Ephesus had this massive outdoor amphitheater capable of holding archaeologists uh, estimate 25,000 spectators. She also possessed one of the world's largest libraries, probably only second to Alexandria. She was a center of not just commerce and banking, but of education and learning. Beyond this, Ephesus was the center, was the location of one of the ancient wonders uh, of the world. The Temple of Artemis, or Diana as it is in Greek mythology. Diana was the goddess of childbirth and women. Making Ephesus, aside from being a center of commerce and banking and education and learning, it was also a center of religion, very religious. So you had this temple to Diana, which associated grotesque practices of temple prostitution. You see, the worship of Diana was steeped in mysticism, the occult. It filled the city with kind of an unspeakable immorality. In a modern comparison to try to place Ephesus in light of, of let's say, American culture, she was the banking institutional society of, of like a New York City. But it, she was also like kind of a hybrid between Las Vegas, Sin City, but then also like that deep, seedy underpinning of, of New Orleans. It's a weird, weird place. And yet, in spite of all of this, I mean, you would think that such a place would be not ideal for the spread of the gospel, but we see the opposite. You see, Ephesus proved to be, in spite of all of these things, fertile soil. The Apostle Paul visited Ephesus first at the very end of his second missionary journey, along with his friends Aquila and Priscilla. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Paul, though, uh, that visit being short-lived, would return at the end of, of his third expedition, uh, spending almost three years ministering in Ephesus. Again, Acts 19 records those events. Not only was this church made up mostly of Gentiles, founded and shepherded by none other than the Apostle Paul, we're told that he would teach daily from the school of Tyrannius. But we're told in the book of Acts, again, chapter 19, that it was during this season of ministry, this church being pastored by Paul, that the Word of God grew mightily and prevailed, and the name of Jesus was magnified. Amazing. The impact that this church was making was so incredible, so tangible, so real, that again, according to the Acts narrative, a man named Demetrius stirred up a riot. And, and here was his reasoning. He says not only was their trade, which was selling these silver shrines to Diana, in danger of falling into disrepute, but he claims that the temple of the great goddess Diana ran the risk of being despised and her magnificence destroyed. The radical, practical impact of the gospel 
and the city of Ephesus was so tangible, Satan was getting hit in the wallet. In fact, this church in Ephesus was unique. It's really, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating church. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did in any of the other churches that he planted. And not only that, Ephesus is the only one of the seven here in Revelation 2 and 3 that's actually even mentioned in the book of Acts. And it's the only church in the New Testament in which there were two epistles sent. Paul's letter to the Ephesians and this letter written by Jesus sent through the Apostle John. Very fascinating church. Now following the ministry of Paul, the radical teaching of the gospel, the formation of the church, Ephesus and the surrounding region, you could make the argument historically, would never be the same. This church was happening. It had a glowing reputation. She was solid, rock solid. Not only did the church in this city grow, but her impact was so large that from this one church, you would have 12 other churches planted throughout Asia Minor. There is no question, historically speaking, that this Ephesian church was a theological titan. And a sweet moment that Paul would spend with the Ephesian elders on the shores of Miletus, recorded in Acts 20, he would attest that this church had not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. They were a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church. To this point, that the doctrinal acumen uh, of the members of this congregation, like just read through the letter of Ephesians, the, the letter that Paul would send from a Roman cell ten years after this meeting with the elders. It just shows that, that they had there was a depth, prominence. Beyond Paul's ministry, the church in Ephesus would be pastored by Paul's protege, a man named Timothy, uh, who in the mid-60s would be stoned to death in the streets of Ephesus for the cause of Christ. After that, the church would be pastored specifically by the Apostle John, our writer here in, in Revelation. In the case of this particular letter we have recorded for us in these seven verses, please note that it comes 40 years after the church had been established by Paul, and 30 years after Paul's epistle. So some time has elapsed. Now, regarding this period of church history that the letter, uh, Jesus uses this letter to address, the church of Ephesus correlates, I believe, to what we would call the post-apostolic church that comprises kind of roughly of the first and second centuries. Like, in a sense, Jesus here is addressing more than just the believers in Ephesus, but he's addressing second and third generation Christians that these Ephesians represented. Now, as you examine church history, you will discover that as the church began to transition away from its original founding, several things become characteristic of the second wave. First, just like the original disciples the original apostles and followers of Jesus, the generations that followed were also extremely devoted to the things of Christ. They hadn't seen Jesus with their own eyes. You know, they didn't have that, that same rapport of, of being in Galilee, watching the miracles, but they had heard the stories, they believed in faith, and they were devoted. In a Roman world that was growing largely hostile to Christians, these saints were serious followers of Jesus. In fact, you could make the argument you couldn't be a non-serious follower of Jesus. You had to be devout. Enduring both the persecutions of Nero 
and Domitian, these believers, they lived and they died, many of them, for the name and glory of Jesus Christ. Secondly, as demonstrated by some of the early writings of this time period, specifically a man by the name of Clement of Rome, and what's known as the Diodace, which is considered to be the oldest catechism of the Christian faith, we also know that this post-apostolic church was doctrinally solid. They were devoted and they were solid. Now, it is true that if you study this period of, of history, there were heretical influences percolating around the church, but they hadn't gone mainstream. They were left rele relegated to the fringes. And you can imagine, rightly so, that that would have been largely the byproduct of the constant exhortations and the writings of Peter and Paul and John to beware of what? False teachers they knew were coming. And yet, while they were doctrinally solid and devoted, Sadly, and I think rather tragically, according to, again, the early writings of this time period, these church leaders, there is ample evidence that something dangerous was happening. That during this second, third, fourth generation, the church was beginning to make the subtle but tragic turn from the gospel of grace to legalism. Because these Ephesian Christians recognized, rightly so, the the wicked tendencies of the world around them. Don't forget, they're in Ephesus. There's the temple of Diana. There's the occult, and there's sexual immorality everywhere. It's mainstream. It, you, almost like you feel like you got to blindfold your kids when you're driving down the street just because of the billboards. Like, I mean, they were surrounded by wickedness, immorality, sexual perversions. And as a result, they feared that the negative influences of their culture might end up corroding the moral fabric of their church. And so to combat that, and you can sympathize, you can understand this, the early church leaders began erecting moral walls. Why? In order to protect and insulate the flock from these creeping sinful influences. While the motivation of this had been a noble desire to remain holy, to remain set apart for the purposes of God, the sad and, I believe, unintended consequences was that holiness, holiness was no longer seen as the result or the manifestation of the transformative power of God's grace, but was instead seen as something that was achieved or earned through personal performance or the limiting of liberty. Uh, let me give you an example of this. A man by the name of Ignatius, which if you study church history, that name will pop up. He was the third bishop of the church in Antioch and was actually a student of the Apostle John. So he's way early. Let me read what he wrote. He says, quote, Experience proves that in this life peace and satisfaction are had not by the listless, but by those who are fervent in God's service. And rightly so. For in their effort to overcome themselves and to rid themselves of self-love, they rid themselves of the roots of all passion and unrest. What's missing? The power of the gospel in that statement. Again, I mentioned in our introduction to these seven letters that every letter begins the same way. It's addressed to the angel of the church, fill in the blank. Additionally, they all close with the same admonition, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And between these two bookends, as noted, Jesus, he'll commend what he finds commendable, condemn what he finds condemnable. He'll emphasize a relevant aspect of his person before finally providing this church, these churches, 
the necessary instruction and warnings. Now notice, in light of what this church was living in, in its context, the first century, in addition to what this church represents historically, let's unpack it. I mean, Jesus begins here with a powerful list of commendations, right? Powerful. Look at it again. He writes, beginning with verse 2, I know. Which means like, like Jesus had a full knowledge of. Like nothing was getting by Jesus. He's like, I know your works. And these were the things that this church had purpose to do for Jesus. I know your works. And I know your labor, which describes the intensity of the work. Like they labored. They served Jesus to the point of exhaustion. He says, I know your patience. Which affirms that these Ephesian believers, these Christians, were not swerved from their purpose. They exhibited in their work and labor a steadfast endurance in the service of King Jesus. He says, I know your perseverance. Like through it all, these believers, man, they were a workhorse. Their labor, their work, their endurance, their perseverance, they could carry literally what was burdensome. No sweat off their back. Jesus adds, he says, you labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. I mean, what a commendation. What a good thing. Like these saints served faithfully and took their calling seriously. While their culture was undoubtedly immoral and in turn hostile to the followers of Christ, these Christians, and they, they rose up. They were working hard to fulfill the work that Jesus had called them to anyway. Like outwardly speaking, this church was dynamite. It was active. It was impressive. There was a genuine concern for the lost and determination to reach their world no matter the cost. Aside from this, Jesus, he commends the fact that they cannot bear those who are evil. Now, though they were seeking to reach a corrupt culture, these saints refused any type of moral compromise. Like they were uniquely able to influence their world without allowing their world to negatively influence them. Sometimes that can be a tightrope. They refused literally to support or bear those of a bad nature or those who were evil. This church knew the difference between what was right and wrong, and they stood for what was right. You see, the leaders of this church were not afraid of exerting discipline and the presence of sin. They knew that a healthy body requires a healthy immune system. Like the stakes were just too high to allow any type of nonsensical, sinful behavior to spread through their church. They wouldn't have it. Jesus also says, he says, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You found them to be liars. You know, since this, this church was founded upon the truth of Scripture, teaching the whole counsel of God, they willingly tested, or they made trial of, anyone that came claiming to have some type of an authority, apostles. The church leaders in Ephesus were serious about protecting the flock that God had entrusted to their care. They were, they were willing to publicly call out teachers as liars, when they deviated from biblical truth and were liars. As just one example of this, in verse 6, Jesus commends them for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which he also hated. And admittedly, there's kind of a debate as to what this group of Nicolaitans represented. And you can find various uh, theories. Since this is my Bible study, I'll give you mine. 
The Greek word Nicolaitis, it's a compound word. Nico, which means to conquer, and Laetus, which means simply the people. I believe, and many scholars agree, that the Nicolaitans were an early group within the church that were seeking to exert authority over the people, the laity, claiming their need for some type of priestly intermediary to conquer the people. Like, if this is the case, you can understand why Jesus would say that he hated their deeds, right? Why would Jesus hate those deeds? Well, no man has the right to come between Jesus and his bride. A bride has full access. Now, following a a wonderful commendation, Jesus transitions to now kind of a measure of criticism. Like, while this Ephesian church this second wave of Christianity, we're doing all the right things. Jesus, though, diagnoses a heart problem. There was a condition. Look at verse 4. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I mean, imagine being in that church, getting this scroll from the Apostle John, who's on the island of Patmos. You're pumped up, you're excited. Not only that, but you find out that Jesus has included a special message for your congregation. Imagine if I got out one Sunday morning and was like, I got in the mail a letter from Jesus addressed to Calvary 316. How stinking cool is that? And we're all pumped up, and I open up the scroll, because of course it would be a scroll. And I go through this like wonderful list where Jesus is like, I know your works and I know your labor, you know, for my name's sake, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, that's us. I'm glad he sees. And then you, and then you get to the bomb, right? Nevertheless, in my mind as I play out the movie, there's a dun, 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 right? I mean, that's not what you want to hear, especially from Jesus. After a list of great things, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, to understand what it was that these believers had left, you kind of have to first understand what Jesus means when he uses this phrase, first love. In the Greek, first, protos, means first in rank. It's kind of a military term. Love here is the word agape. It's a feminine noun. It signifies love, passionate love, intimacy, affection. The word describes agape love, marital love. That being said, in the majority of instances, the word agape is used in Scripture, in the Bible, in the New Testament. Agape refers not necessarily to the the love of a, a husband for a wife, but really the covenantal love of God for us, for mankind. Which, by the way, is a love designed to yield a reciprocal love back to him. That's what agape does. In fact, to this point, 12 times. In the New Testament, you will find the word agape used in the phrase, the love of God, the agape of God. Contrary to what most commentators commentators say, I do not believe that in referring to their first love, that Jesus was in some way addressing a feeling that had diminished, or, or an excitement that this church no longer possessed, or a romance that with time had slowly waned. I don't believe, as one author observed, that the problem with this Ephesian church was that their their home had become a house. Please understand, when it comes to the Christian experience, your experience and mine, 
First love, agape love, was never a love that you or me possess for God, but rather a love he demonstrated towards us. Again, the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrated his own love towards us. You want to guess what the word love is in the Greek? Agape. He demonstrated his own agape towards us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So, how is it that we leave our first love? Christian, you leave your first love the very moment the motivation for doing anything related to your Christian life, whether it be Bible study, or or time in worship, or prayer, or for that matter, godly service, becomes anything other than a natural response of the first love. Jesus' love for you. Again, this is a hard issue. Don't miss this. The problem wasn't the fact that this church no longer loved Jesus. I mean, outwardly, everything looked right. The problem was that they had grown to see their work, labor, doctrinal purity, as the way they could demonstrate their love back to Jesus, as opposed to those things being a natural response of the incredible love that Jesus had already demonstrated towards them. They were now trying to earn something they had already been given. You know, the issue that Jesus is addressing, again, it's not a diminished feeling or a waning passion. What he's addressing is a warped motivation. Which explains why, after listing all of the wonderful things this church was doing, Jesus says what? Nevertheless, I have this against you. He's saying, like, in spite of all of this wonderful things going on, happening in this church, the, the one thing missing, by the way, it trumps all of it. I don't even care about the other stuff. Because of the thing that's missing. You know, to me it's a really sobering and radical idea. But Jesus here is telling the Ephesian church, and by extension you and me, that he cares more about the motivation behind our work than the work itself. Like notice that Jesus is direct. And that this was not something that they had accidentally lost. Okay? I know this might be a very elementary idea, but bear with me. They had left. It wasn't a lost. Like this was something that they had willingly departed from, stepped away from. Like there was a quality to their love that just no longer existed. Now I have found that leaving your first love is much easier to do than anyone might think. And let let me explain. There is a dangerous byproduct when the motivation behind your godly service shifts from being a natural response of God's love for you to the way you demonstrate your love to Him. Your works supplant His grace as now being the basis of His favor and your holiness. Like Because this church culture in Ephesus that was later emblematic in the post-apostolic church stress what did they stress they stressed demonstrating a love for Jesus but they did this in opposition of enjoying Jesus's love for them and when that happens it becomes so easy 
to place a greater emphasis, focus, on the work we do and the sacrifice we make for Christ than the work Jesus did and the sacrifice he made for us. Like holiness in this dynamic becomes the result of pious living and not the byproduct of God's amazing grace. The sufficiency of Jesus' work on Calvary ends up being replaced by the sufficiency of my own merit. I'm good enough. I'm doing it. Like in a sense, Jesus tells them that because they were exchanging here the gospel of grace for kind of this legalistic moralism, they were making a decision to leave their first love. Because legalism fosters a moral structure and creates, by the way, a church culture that demands more laws to obey, liberties to forgo, things to be sacrificed, works to do, instead of a personal relationship founded on Jesus' first love to enjoy? Legalism is fundamentally anti-gospel. It doesn't mean it's against the gospel. It seeks to replace the gospel. You see, it diametrically opposes the good news. Like, what is the good news? What is the true gospel? It's the fact that Jesus has already done to earn for me a favor I could never earn for myself. And then it tells me to enjoy it. You know, church is in a dangerous place when it starts heralding, heralding and celebrating personal achievements over sin and the place of the true gospel of grace which presents Jesus' permanent victory over sin. You know, in light of this heart condition, Jesus pleads with them. He says, to remember, remember from where you have fallen. And then he exhorts them to repent before finally admonishing them to do the first works. Like obviously the key to understanding Jesus' counsel here hinges upon what he means by the first works. Now, let me illustrate how I think so many pastors tragically misapply the application for this passage. Because you'll hear, I, I listen to a bunch of Bible studies almost universally, this ends up being the point in the Bible study, you get the following exhortation. Christian, if you've left your first love, I get real southern when I do this, if you've left your first love, if you're not feeling it for Jesus like you used to, then you need to get back to doing the things you were doing at the beginning. You know, when you first got saved, the first works. Just like a married couple whose flame for one another has dimmed, the key to rectifying this stagnation is to re-stimulate the relationship. You need to reignite that passion that you lost for Jesus. By Christian, getting back to work. Don't be a lazy wife. Return to your first love. Do the first works. This is how you do it. Christian, you need to commit right here, right now, that you're going to read your Bible every day for the next year. That'll do it. Not only that, instead of listening to Rush Limbaugh on your daily commute, you need to listen to that godly angel, Chris Tomlin, and sing along. Every single morning before the sun rise, you need to pray, because that's when God's listening. It ain't after the sun's rise. You need to pray when Jesus is there. Make sure you know you're devoted. You need to get back to going to church and serving others. Church attendance, tithes, and offerings. Let's pass the plate. 
The exhortation is the, the best way to fix the heart issue, right? Is to recreate the early days of your relationship with Jesus. That's the exhortation. That's how this is always applied. And you know, it sounds nice, but there is a fundamental problem with this approach. Think about the Ephesian church. They were already doing everything you could possibly be doing, right? That's Jesus' combination. I know your works. I know your labor. He runs through the list. Like there was nothing more. They were already doing it all. What more could they do? The other problem is that in this twist, presenting a list of things for you to do to fix your relationship with Jesus, that perspective becomes guilty of the very thing that Jesus was trying to address in his letter in the first place. It's, it's not an accident that Jesus opens his letter in verse 1. He introduces himself, right? As he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks presently in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Like beyond the fact that Jesus is reminding them of his authority over the church. I mean, he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Like this detail that he's presently walking in the midst of the seven golden lamps is the idea, the reason that this is the part of his person demonstrated to them is that it spoke what? More of his presence than really his person. It's a descriptor of what he's doing. You see, the only effective way to change the heart of an individual, the only way that you can retune their motivations when it comes to the Christian faith, it's for you to stop whatever it is you're doing and get your focus back onto the person and the love and the grace of Jesus. Like what this church needed, more than anything else, if they were to return to their first love, was they needed a renewed awareness of and dependency on the person and presence of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Don't, re don't respond. Just think about it. What was your first work? What was the first work when it came to your relationship with Jesus? Like, like what did you do when you first encountered the Savior? I'll give you your answer. You heard his call and you humbly came to a cross where you witnessed the incredible depths of his love for you. And then you placed your faith in his atoning sacrifice, accepting his forgiveness of sins, receiving his blessed favor, and then you died to yourself so that you could live through him and enjoy the new life that he gives you through the indwelling of his spirit. That's what you did. Consider Jesus' counsel. He pleads with them to remember, remember from where you have fallen. You know, in order to address this heart condition, Jesus wants them to remember the beginning. Remember. And then keep remembering. That's the tense in the Greek. Remember and keep remembering. Always remember how your relationship with Jesus began. And what's interesting about that when you do it, your relationship with Jesus began and it had nothing to do with your works your sacrifices, your faithfulness, and it had everything to do with Jesus Christ, His work, His sacrifice, and His faithfulness. That's what you should remember. You know, as a remedy to what had gotten warped in their own hearts and in their own thinking, 
Jesus wanted the Ephesian believers to remember the first moment that they had encountered and experienced that first love. Not their love for him, but his love. You see, Jesus wanted them to remember the magnitude of his love that was demonstrated to them independent of them through the amazing grace revealed through his willing sacrifice on the cross. And then Jesus says what? Remember and then repent. You know, to return to your first love in order to get back to the point where God's love for you is the preeminent thing, the motivating reality. These believers, they had to reject, turn away from the notion that their works played any role in God's lasting favor or their personal holiness. They had to reject something, resist something, turn from something. You know, the word repentance, it's not just a turning from, it's a turning to. It's two sides to the coin. Which is why Jesus then instructs them to get back to doing the first works. They could remember from where they had fallen. They could even repent of their legalism. But it would all be for naught if they failed to do the first works. And I know that the way that that sounds in the English is kind of confusing. Because I just spent a whole Bible study saying that it's not about you doing anything. And yet here now Jesus is saying do the first works. What does that mean? Like don't forget. What the first works are as it pertains to your relationship with Jesus. What did you originally do? You see, to do the first works is what? It's Jesus' exhortation to come back to the cross. The original place. The place of grace. The basis of favor. The motivation of behavior. The origins of holiness. The essence of God's first love. What do you do? Go back to the cross. If you have a heart condition, in 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, we read that in this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's sobering to think, again, but Jesus warns this church that if they refuse to make this change, In spite of everything good going on, if they didn't make this change, he says that he will come quickly and remove their lampstand from its place. You know, because the departure from the power of grace fosters in turn legalism. Jesus is telling them. He's saying, if you don't make this change, if you don't resist legalism, if you don't come back to the power of grace, I will shut down your church rather than allow it to peddle such a message. That's how seriously Jesus takes this. Legalistic moralism and the place of the power of grace. Never substitute the power of grace. If this church ever does that, leave it. And find another one that preaches grace. And yet, Jesus also promises that if this church overcame this root of legalism, by returning back to the essence of the gospel... Their first love, a dependency on grace alone. What would happen? Jesus makes a promise. He says that they would experience from God renewed life and renewed fruitfulness. Look at verse 7. He closes his letter saying, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Friend, this morning, if you feel as though your life is kind of fruitless, your Christian experience, stale, stagnant, maybe the reason is that you've left your first love. Now, so what is Jesus saying to our church? What is he saying to each of us individually? For starters, (laughs) I need to say, 
that modeling the outward appearance of this Ephesian church is not a bad thing at all. They should be commended for what was commendable. Oh, that Calvary 316 would be known as a church making an impact in our community. That we would be recognized by Jesus as servants. That we would possess a heart to study His Word. Boldness to speak the truth to our culture. That we would reject the lie. That we would hate what Jesus hates and love the things that He loves. And I must also say that like the Ephesians, we should also be a church uniquely distinct from, but also one that appeals to our culture. That it would be said that while Calvary 316 was a magnet for the downtrodden, we were able to boldly resist that which was evil. That in our witness to the world around us, Jesus was magnified and His word grew mightily. That that might be said of us. And yet, We need to take Jesus' criticism. We need to take this to heart. For when any aspect of our Christian experience is motivated by anything other than His first love, we're in danger of beginning this tailspin from grace and blessing into legalism and barrenness. Great word, Pastor Zach. Now practically... How do I know that that's happening in my life? Like, is there a way that I can kind of do this own diagnostic? Like, how do I know I'm, 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 I don't want to leave my first love? How do I know what's happening? First, don't misunderstand work is not a bad thing. Work's a good thing. It was commended by Jesus, their work and their labor. You see, God designed work. And he did so for our enjoyment. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the human experience, Adam enjoyed his work, caring for the garden. And why? Because his work flowed downhill from his relationship with God. Adam enjoyed his work. He delighted in his work because his work was God-given and God-motivated. And yet, if you examine the story, following the fall, a change was made, right? You see, Adam's work no longer flowed from his relationship with God. And what happened? it almost immediately morphed into labor and toil. Again, Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, we're told that God said, curse the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. God cursed his work. Here's my point, Christian. The way that you can tell that your Christian service is being motivated by legalism and is no longer a manifestation of God's grace. The way you can tell, it's very simple. Anytime there is an aspect of your Christian life no longer flowing from Jesus' first love, one thing is always bound to happen. I guarantee it. God will curse your work, and it will no longer be enjoyable. You'll no longer enjoy it. We have a phrase for this in Christian circles. We call it burnout. Right? Have you heard the phrase? Christian burnout. You know the moment that that Bible study kind of just turns stale? Yeah. Yeah. Like, your time in prayer, it just kind of has become more like just ritualistic. Burnout happens when, when worship is unenthusiastic. I have somebody come up after service and be like, you know, Pastor Zach... I really didn't enjoy the worship this morning. 
And, and my answer is, well, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. Like, your opinion really didn't matter. <laughs> but you know those times where you're just not, like, I'm just not, I'm just not feeling it. Maybe if, I, maybe if I move a little or clap, don't, don't do that. People clap, they get off beat, and it's very hard to play on time. You know, moments, burnout, where let's say you were serving in children's ministry, or you're ushering, or doing the media, you were doing something, and man, you loved it, you enjoyed it, you were excited about it, but then with time, you're like, I gotta, I gotta clean another fanny in the nursery for Jesus? No! And you just get tired and you're just burned out like when those things happen you know what might be happening is that God is very subtly but intentionally cursing that work he's not letting you enjoy it because he's wanting to warn you that you're in the process of leaving your first love your motivations are wrong there's a heart issue you're no longer doing whatever it was that you were doing out of a response to God's love, but in a way to try to earn God's love. Like if you're coming up to church to usher, which, which includes cleaning toilets to, because you're trying to earn God, the, you'll be miserable. The only way you do that is a response to God's love. And when it's no longer a response, God will curse it because you're doing it for the wrong reason so that we'll get our attention back to where it needs to be. Burnout, I believe. Maybe God just letting you know that you're trying to earn something he's already given you. If that's you. Like if you find yourself tired, burned out, and this can apply to all kinds of things in life, not just church life. The remedy is simple. Again, remember Jesus. And return to that place where you first experienced his love. Like come back to the cross. The place of first love. Hold fast the banner of grace. I've been given something I don't have to earn. I just have to enjoy it. Seek to do nothing more than the first works, whereby all Christian work flow. And the first work is not doing anything. It's basking in and enjoying his love. As Jesus would say in John 15, 13, there is no greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends, and Jesus did that for you while you were still a sinner. This morning, may he or she who has an ear, you only need one, to hear what the Spirit is saying. You have a choice what type of relationship with Jesus you want to have. The question is, what is the motivator of your Christian behavior? You can labor in your work, seeking to earn a blessed favor that you've already been given, and in the process die a slow, unenjoyable death. Or you can abide in the vine, abide in Jesus' grace, and experience the life and the fruitfulness that only flows from the fountainhead of his great love. You know, as a, in closing, I want to point out that it's not an accident. Now, Jesus gave us very few commandments. He was not a big commandment guy. Very few things he commanded. But one of the things that he did command his followers, Christians, you and I, to do every time we got together was what? To come to the Lord's table, 
to partake of the elements, elements that represent his body and blood. You know, in light of this letter to this church, to these Ephesians, think about the language that Jesus used, how they tie together. Like, what does Jesus specifically do in light of the table? He says, do this, right? Do this. And that's speaking of partaking of the bread, which represented his body of atonement and, and signifying drinking of the cup, which is his blood and purification, holiness. He says, do this in remembrance of me. When we're departing from our first love, he says, come back and do this and remember me. Think about it. Knowing how easy it would be for all of us to slide into a legalistic mindset, overemphasizing our works, which robs us of the power of his grace. Jesus knew that the most central truth that we as his disciples could never, ever, ever depart from or forget was the cross that demonstrated the first love. What first love is and was and will always be that it will be more than enough. 1 John 4, verse 19, it defines the dynamic. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Christian, I leave you with this. When you believe you're, you're doing good, remember Jesus and the fact it was your sin that drove him to the cross. And when you start thinking, you're not good enough. Remember Jesus and the fact that it was his great love for you that drove him to the cross. So Father, with that thought, we just want to let it settle in.